Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a Swedish entrepreneur. I think that we're gonna learn quite a bit, you know, from him, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of entrepreneurship. You know, the successes, the failures, the mistakes, uh, scaling, uh, fundraising, pivots, you name it. So I guess without further ado, Frederick Skanser, welcome to the show today. Thanks a lot. So originally born in Sweden. So how was life there in, in Sweden growing up? Um, it was great. Um, you know, it was grew up in the north of Sweden. Um, so lots of snow uh, and then moved around. And, and I've also, also lived in Germany and Switzerland when I grew up. Uh, Very cool. And I see that uh, you obviously studied in Brown. So quite a, quite a long uh, distance no, from, from Sweden. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I... Um, I went to an American school in Switzerland and then decided to go and study engineering at Brown. So I did that, got my master's degree um, at MIT, studied uh, artificial intelligence and robotics there. Um, and then, then went back to Sweden, worked as software development for a couple of years in, in uh, the field of industrial robotics, um, but then went back to the US to business school at Stanford. Yeah, you've, you've done quite a, a lot of studies. So, uh, so actually, before, before really uh, diving deep, into that, you know, I'd like to ask you because here you go from engineering to robotics. So what was that transition? What really got you into engineering and then what got you into robotics? Well, I, I really liked um, products. Um, and so that is, you know, and inventing things. And, and so that is what's, what's got, got me into the sort of field of, of technology. Um, and, and I think originally I thought of technology as always being so sort of big industrial. And then I discovered product, which, which was amazing that you could actually have, you know, this notion of product management and kind of how to develop product and the methodologies around that. Um, and then what I, you know, what I, I, I you know, I, I got caught up with, with the robotics, which, which probably was, you know, 10 years before this um, new interest that's coming into it now and, and, and really, really enjoy that. Um, both from a mechanical and electrical and, and software point of view. So after you had done all these years of, of studying, I mean, you you went to Brown and then MIT, I mean, two amazing universities and great networks that you were able to develop as well. Uh, but but why did you think that, that the business component was something that you had to bring to the table? 
Yeah, I I went to Stanford because I felt like ultimately I wanted to start a company, and um, and I and I felt like I needed not only the engineering part of it, but actually also also the business part of it, and so I wanted to bring that together and further the network and and get exposure to other people with similar ideas, and and actually also spend some time in Silicon Valley. Which is something that you did. You spent uh, five years there, working for a mobile internet-based um, company. So, so I guess why did you, you know, kind of like uh, put put aside, you know, the possibility of maybe starting a business? Because I'm sure that many of your classmates from Stanford were launching their own business. Uh, why why did you decide to to join another company rather than maybe starting your own? Yeah. So you know, my my thesis. Going to Stanford, you know, my, I wanted to come exit Stanford and 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 start my own business. And my 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 thesis was, look, you know, uh, AI had actually been at that point a disappointment, and you know, most of the applications had been toys. So what I wanted to do is actually start a toy company and um, and apply AI <laughs> and robotics to it. And I felt like, you know, um, the you know, what I needed then to learn was about the toy industry. So, you know, in my, my summer of business school, when all my friends, this was in 99, the height of the internet boom, my friends, they went to uh, to the internet companies of, of the day and, and didn't want to go back to school because they got the stock options for the summer internship. Um, I, I went to um, El Segundo in LA and, uh, and did an internship in the high-tech group at Mattel, which is the world's largest uh, toy company, which is, was an amazing experience and incredibly smart people from MIT there. And we worked with the Media Lab at MIT. Um, but I learned that it was still a bit early for AI. And I came back and I felt like, you know, this internet thing, which I felt was great pages and pretty simple technology at the time, uh, it's still going to change the world. And um, I want to join this. And then I ended up joining a mobile internet company, which was a pioneering company at the time called Phone.com, became OpenWave and was the first wave of mobile internet. Um, and that was very exciting. I did that for five years. Um, then wanted to go back to Europe and um, spend about a year with them there. And then actually ended up launching my my first company uh, in Europe, uh, in London. So let's, let's talk about that. So tell us about how, because I mean, here you are, you've been for five years working for, for other companies, uh, larger companies, you know, that are not like a, in a studio or in a, you know, a, in a door room or anything like that. So, so finally, you make the decision to launch your own business. So, so what was that process like, and and how did you end up, you know, like bringing AutoQuake to life? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, my co-founder and I, we spent a lot of time looking at different technology businesses um, to see what we wanted to start. Um, and the model that we ultimately ended up settling for was actually in the used car business. Um, uh, of all, um, we felt it was uh, incredibly inefficient. Mo- mostly, actually, to to sell a used car was very hard, and but also to buy one and it's very expensive. Um, so we ended up starting a used car retailer um, uh, uh, to basically, um, you know, s- sell used cars online. Um, and we we raised about thirty million dollars from Excel and Highland um, in the UK to do that. Um, and how did you meet your co-founder of AutoQuake? We, we met in London through a mutual uh, introduction by friends from Stanford. Got it. So what was a, essentially, I mean, you were talking about used cars. So what, what ended up being the business model of AutoQuake? So the business model was um, taking used cars, mostly from 
businesses who are selling cars, like leasing companies. When a leasing car is, is four years old, it comes offline. It's usually sold business to business to dealers. And we said, look, you can skip it. You can skip a step in the supply chain. We can sell it directly to consumers for you, and give you more money back. So that was the appeal to the to the leasing companies, and and the appeal to consumers was that they could get access to these cars uh, much cheaper. Um, so we because we cut out a step in the supply chain, you know, we could split that margin between the the seller of the car and the buyer of the car. And and from our perspective. We didn't have to buy any cars. We didn't. We we had the cars physically, so we had a full operation. But but they, we didn't own them. We didn't have any inventory risk. So from a sort of an investor point of view, it was a very nice, clean model with actually positive positive working capital. Um, I guess we were paid before we had to uh, give the money back for the cars. Got it. And here you had the amazing investors. I mean, you had Axel, Highland, and you did multiple rounds. You did your A, your B, your C. So how, how much capital did you guys raise in total for this? So we raised about $30 million. $30 million. Got it. And, and I know that the journey was a little bit bumpy. So I know that here you guys spent it about almost clo close to six years really building this company. Uh, and, you know, here we are talking about a company that went from literally a 500% growth uh, to, to, to a disappointing uh, type of uh, outcome. No? So, so what happened? Frederick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that, and that was uh, that was uh, my, you know, my, a big mind shift for me because, yeah, as you said, you know, the company was incredibly successful, grew very quickly. Uh, in one year, we grew actually in one year over five hundred percent. And I think we all had thought we had found the next eBay. Um, and then came the asset swings of two thousand eight and two thousand nine, which is the previous recession. And, and that really caught us hard because we had, you know, invested so much in our growth uh, and had way too big costume for, for, for that. And, and we ended up continuing for a couple of years, but we never really recovered. And so we ended up selling part of the business, but we never sort of got anywhere near, anywhere near close to what, what, you know, we had ex for, for many years expected to be the exit. So that was hugely disappointed and it was a huge, Huge mind shift, uh, and and actually a bit hard to recover from mentally for myself, of course. Um, I can imagine, and and obviously the the reflection part. I'm sure that that you got a ton of lessons from that. So I guess you know now you know when you were doing the reflections, you know what were what were the things or what are the things now that perhaps you would have done differently for that business. Um, I think that the main lesson is that you have to get your unit economics right before you start scaling the business so you you know there are many stages in in the business um you have you know the first stage finding product market fit which is sort of a gradual process but at some point you're, you're pretty close and then you have to find a good go-to-market model um and then it's and, and then you have to have reasonably good go-to-market metrics um but it, it's very tempting to kind of keep pushing too hard at all of these stages. And then you put on a pretty big costume and the unit economics and the optimization in the business and the health of the business and the core of the product aren't, aren't as strong as they could be because you are going to be spending all your time just scaling that business. And if, there, if, if everything isn't perfect, then it's even harder to scale it. So just taking that sort of extra year and breathing a little bit and, and, and uh, you know, making sure everything works and getting the metrics better 
um, before you scale and then scaling gradually, um, I, I think was the biggest learning. I, I mean, it, it is so easy. It, somehow it tends to be that some, you know, a couple of these companies come out at the same time and you compete against each other. And, and you know, it's, it's you know, you, you sort of feel that such a strong urge to grow. But really, these markets tend to be quite large. And it isn't that often in the end that you encounter the competition and in the early days. And it is much more important to survive and get to spend, you know, five, 10 years to work through the problem than to grow that extra, you know, 20% in a year or 30% in a year. Um, and just taking that time and building the better company, the better product, uh, the more thoughtful way is a better way to do it. Yeah. Got it. And obviously for you, I mean, you were alluding to it. Uh, after investing, you know, all these years, you know, obviously raising the money, you know, I'm sure that for you, um, you know, it was it was quite disappointing and, and I guess, you know, like very hard to swallow as well. No? So, so what was this process for you of, of really dealing as well with, with the emotional side? Because obviously there is an attachment there to, to the business as well. How was that for you and, and, and how did you, you know, bounce back from that? I, I think it's interesting. I think, you know, for most people, you know, it's sort of when you end up sort of exiting that, you know, and, and, and the business and, and in this case we sold part of it and we sort of shut part of it down. Sort of when that happens, that's kind of when everybody goes, "Oh wow, okay, you know what happened." Uh, but as a, as the entrepreneur, you know, you've you've kind of been on this journey <laughs> up till then, and you kind of knew knew some of this was happening, and and so you you know you usually you actually end up, I think, having made your peace with it when, by the time it happens. Um, and my biggest concern at that time was, you know, make sure that we had, you know we had 120 employees to make sure everybody everybody was fine and, get, and got into good jobs afterwards. Um, and then you kind of gotta you gotta regroup and you gotta <laughs> great the good thing is you may need to make a living so you need to find something else to do uh, and and sort of move on and and I think what I we we had great investors and we had such a great partnership with these investors I learned so much from them and and uh, and we I worked with great people in the company and 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 it was every year was such a new big learning experience that I. You know, I, I I was thankful for that learning experience. I you know I, I you know it was it's not just about money, and and I think I got a lot out of those years, uh, and yeah. really appreciate those things that I've learned. From and obviously, all all those investors that you guys had, I mean, super sophisticated, and you know they've they've seen it all, and obviously they they have a lot of portfolio companies that that as well you know go under because it's the nature of it. Startups are super risky, so. Did you get any any type of advice from them on on how to you know transition into the next chapter or, or anything like that? Yeah, they were very helpful and supportive. Um, and and from my perspective, I you know I I kind of had made up my mind. My, my you know at that time I was living in London. My family was in Sweden. It was sort of time to come home. Um, and so I uh, I ended up uh, going back to Sweden, joining my wife there. And uh, so it was. Um, um, you know, so I I had it I had a, a plan thought out for that and it worked worked pretty well. Got it. And obviously, you were going from one startup to another. I mean, especially here personally, because you were having your first child. I always say that that children are like startups, but there is no exit, and you only break even when they let you sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true, and it's not necessarily always the best 
time to start <laughs> do another startup. But uh, you know, I think I it's once you've done a startup and you've kind of gotten quite far and you've felt that energy and uh, you know, then it's hard to go back and work for you know for other company. Um, of course. So yeah, and so here I, you, you you did it again. So 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 tell us about it. Yeah, so I ended up um, I ended up joining a um, um, marketing technology company that that built some technology, and and uh, I, I offered to help them sort of do something with us. And I I met my co-founder there, and and we basically spun out the, some technology that he had um, that he had started to develop there um, uh, around Facebook and Facebook advertising. And this was very early when nobody thought you know you could advertise uh, at scale at fa- on Facebook. But we, we believed in it. We'd seen the journey with Google and we, we felt Facebook was on the same path. And we, uh, you know, the thesis that we had was that, you know, you, for, for advertising on Google, it was helpful at the time to have, have separate tools to do that. Um, you, you'd need those for Facebook. Uh, all these tools were sort of enterprise tools. And we wanted to make something like that available to SMEs at like $100 a month. Uh, more consumerized version that you could pay with on your credit card. So we ended up convincing Facebook to give us access to the API and and um, and develop that tool, and and that became the, the beginning of of this journey. Um, Got it. And you call that company Quaya. Yes, exactly. Got it. And obviously, this led you uh, to now Funnel, which is the uh, the business where you guys are really focusing all your efforts. So it was like a like a segue, you know, and and, and obviously Quaya still up and running, but very much the focus is on, on funnel. So, so can you tell us about that process and, and how all of a sudden, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, funnel is, is, is really the, the, the horse we're betting on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it was not a, a linear journey. I mean, we, we ended up, we built this Facebook advertising tool. Our vision was always to move beyond Facebook and, and build something broader. We thought it would be a social advertising tool, adding Facebook, uh, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and, and sort of allowing people to advertise on social networks. Um, but we started with Facebook. Uh, it ended up being quite successful. We um, in 2014 we did about one percent of Facebook's revenue, so about 100 million dollars through the tool. Um, from from Facebook's perspective, we were at that time their only partner in their SME segment, so they they were very impressed by how different it was uh, and the, the need it was serving. Um, but we were, you know, thinking about how to broaden this, um, and we spent a lot of time talking to our customers, and they really didn't want us to build a social net, social advertising tools. They wanted us to just build more features for Facebook, and it was a bit frustrating because we wanted to build something strategically bigger that could be a you know billion dollar company. But then when we really spoke to them. What they told us they needed help with. We were also frustrated because there were, you know, we were the only Facebook advertising tool for the SME segment, but there were 30 others for the enterprise segment. So everybody was building the same technology, and it, was, it felt a little bit like duplicating what everybody did. And Facebook built it themselves as well. So, so we said, look, what? And and so, what? What we asked, we stopped and ended asked our customers, you know, what what problems do you have that you haven't that aren't solved? And what kept coming back was that they told us, you know, look, we market on all these different platforms and there are lots of tools that help us make ads and post and lots of tools for optimizing them. But when it comes to 
reporting, when it comes to figuring out how things are going, when it comes to sort of building the PL for our marketing, everybody was using Excel uh, or Google Sheets. And that kept coming back. And we said, okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. And we just couldn't find anybody to solve this problem. And we said, look, that is the problem we need to solve. And we started looking at that and, and sort of shifting our engineering resources to it. Um, and, and when we were getting ready to launch, it felt too big a difference from our existing products. So we launched it as a separate brand and called it Funnel. And uh, it, you know, we never really looked back. Um, but obviously that was a, a pivot and pivots are always scary and risky. And I know that at this point, when you guys decided on pulling the trigger, you only had 12 months left of, of cash in the bank to really support the operations. So, so how did you go about this? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. Yeah, it was a pivot and it was a pivot. You know, we had a, we had a business that was growing, you know, 100 to 150% year on year and had reached product market fit and, <laughs> and looked pretty promising. Um, but we didn't feel like it had this really opportunity to become a billion dollar business. So, so we ended up deciding to do a pivot, but it was a really hard decision. Um, and we sat around the table for a long time talking about this because it's a big risk and, you know, you have to start over from the beginning. But we said, we have a year's worth of cash. If we're going to do it, now is the time. You know, if we're going to replace a spreadsheet in a year, we can do that. Um, and it ended up actually, it ended up playing out the way we thought. Customers had this need, but it ended up taking two years to build the product to have product market fit and not one year. And that was a problem because we only had one year of cash. So in the end, we had to go back. Um, uh, we had to go and find more cash. And, and, and luckily, we had uh, you know strong, strong supporters in our in our early investors, um, a big Swedish um, and fund. How do, you that, that, how do you do that, Dave Frederick? Because you know, obviously, when when you do a pivot, uh, and also this is very scary for you because if these guys would not reinvest, then that sends negative signals to the market and people are going to be like, hey, hold on, these guys have these VCs, they're not reinvesting, there has to be something wrong with the business. So how are you, how are you able to keep that communication uh, and, that, and that incredible uh, trust building with the investors when all of a sudden there's like a massive switch from, you know, like that initial uh, understanding of the project that they were supposed to be joining and now it's becoming a completely different thing? Yeah, it's um, it, you know it it it's really it was it's a, a big challenge. Um, we had a very good relationship with them; they were on the board, um, and you know we we kept in close contact and we made sure we ha had you know metrics to show progress to give people the confidence, um, and then. In the end, and, and, I, and I think what, what ended up helping us was uh, our, our biggest investor at that time was Industry Fonden, which is a Swedish, it's, it's almost like a government fund um, that makes venture investments. And so they are a little more stable um, and a little, have a little bit longer term view than, uh, than, um, than um, maybe a, a traditional VC. And, and so they, they, they really stuck by us and, and we appreciate that. And together with them, they had brought in a, a a smaller VC company, Zabito, um, which is uh, the team behind ClickTech, and, and they they also stuck with it and helped us. And then, you know, together with some new angel investments, um, we managed to pull through. Very nice, very nice. 
So what ended up being the business model of Funnel for the people that are listening? Yeah, so so Funnel, so the fundamental problem that Funnel solves is that you know you as a marketer. So so the you know the big trend is that digital is becoming the heartbeat of modern marketing. Um, it's because the, because it's uh, where the new audience usually is there's a performance problem sorry a performance promise um, and also a promise of measurability and accountability and you know th this past year was the first time that 50 percent of all uh, advertising was digital so the big brands are now coming online with the with the big uh, budgets and so but but to but to deliver on that performance promise you actually have to have you know a process in place to be able to measure this and that's really hard because there's you know, so many different uh, plat marketing platforms. There's like 7,000 marketing tools. Uh, and the data has to be put together and you have to put it in a, in a, in a, in a way that you can see it. Um, so, so, and that's the problem we solve. We pull that together, data together. We, you can say that we do three things. We, so we don't really kind of work on visualizing the data. We put the data in a visualization tool that you are. Basically, there are great visualization tools. For the SME market, there's like Google Data Studio, and then you have great business intelligence tools like you know, Tableau and Looker. The problem that marketers have is they just can't get their data in there in an automated way. Um, so basically, we do three things. We take the data, and the data mostly resides in different sort of uh, marketing platforms online, like cloud tools. So we pull the data in. So that's the first thing we do. And then we do what we call it, make it business ready. So we basically put it in a format uh, that you can actually use it. So, you know, we apply the data, data model, put it together, apply your business logic, which campaign names you have, and put that all together. And then we put it together in a, in a way so that the tools can actually visualize it. Uh, and we do that in an automated way. So that, that's what Funnel does. Um, and nice. it's a soft, software as a service tool. Um, so I guess for this, uh, you know, software as a service. So I know that uh, for being a software as a service uh, company, I know that your culture is uh, quite unique. So, so how have you guys been able to build a unique culture? Yeah, so we have from the start always been a product-driven company, taking the, a long-term view, product first. Um, and of course, and, 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 and many companies do this, apply a lot of agile practices with our development team. I think where we are unique is that we have taken all those practices um, and also apply them to our commercial teams. Um, so basically, you know, so, so, so examples of, of agile practices um, would be that, um, you know, team collaborates, they work together, um, teams tend to be more self-organizing than having just one strong project leader uh, or manager. Um, and so our development teams work like that, uh, but our sales team and our customer success teams work like that as well. Um, and that's, that's very rare to get you know, sales teams to sell together in teams as opposed to just um, uh, focusing on their individual commission or their bonus and their leads. And, Competing about everything. Um, and that's something we spent a lot of time building that culture. So you you would have you know um, you would have um, sales teams that have scrum boards, and then you 
customer opportunities together and talk about them and help each other and stuff like that. Got it. And how much money have you guys raised for, for Funnel? In total, we raised uh, $65 million. Uh, the last round was just uh, a month ago in January. We announced a $47 million uh, round led, uh, led by eight roads and F prime. Uh, Very nice. Congratulations. So I guess for, for raising 47 million in one go for a company of this nature, what are typically the concerns that, that investors are, are, are having that you need to fulfill to get the money? Um, I, I think that they, they look at, they look at three things. Um, they look at, you know, the, the amount of revenue you have. And since it's a SaaS company, it's sort of annualized recurring revenue, uh, and, and the growth rate of it. Um, and so they want to see, a, a you know, a min- minimum growth rate and, and for sort of a, a series B sort of, you know, large CSB around. I mean, I think they want to see at least a doubling of, of it in a year, um, which is what we did last year. We, we grew about 107% last year and, and we're forecasting to approximately double this year again. That's right. um, and then they want to see, um, they want to see go-to-market metrics that work well. So at, at this point in, in, in the company's life, you, you have pretty good sense of what the what the marketing metrics are uh, or the customer acquisition metrics are how much does it cost to acquire a customer uh, what's the lifetime value of a customer how do those relate uh, what's the average deal size how's that moving over time so churn rates uh, do you have uh, net negative churn uh, and so on and then the I think the the final one you know is the strategic positioning uh, can this really be a billion dollar plus company uh two billion dollar company um is the market large enough is the vision big enough um is the market opportunity there are customers happy do they rave about the product got it so so obviously now you know like it's been quite um quite a journey for you i mean it's a uh, remarkable you know where you're coming from and where you're heading and I'm wondering, you know, there's a question here that I typically ask the guests that come on the show. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and speak to that younger Frederick, you know, especially knowing what you know now with all the ups and downs and, 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 and what you've done already as an entrepreneur, if you had that opportunity to, to have a chat with your younger self and, and give your younger self one piece of business advice uh, based on what you know now uh, before launching a business, what would that be, that one piece of, of advice? and why? I, I think um, actually I have two things. I mean, I think when I was really young, I, I was I saw technology as big industrial companies, and and I think I I didn't realize you know how exciting like real technology and software can be, and actually the, the all the different discipline around it. It's not just sort of engineering, but it's you know software development, product design, uh, and so on. That there's so many interesting businesses. There's so many interesting disciplines. And then, you know, getting a little bit older, I, I wish I would have, you know, given myself uh, a kick and, and got out and become an entrepreneur earlier uh, because it's, you know, it's such a fantastic opportunity to do, especially when you're young. That's amazing. So I guess uh, if you were to go to sleep and wake up five years from now and the vision of a funnel is completely realized, what does that world look like? Well, the fundamental problem that we feel that we solve 
um, is that you know business intelligence has, has has failed business users in that they have great visualization tools, but business users aren't allowed are able to get uh, their data into these tools. We solve that now for marketing teams. We help you know, when they sign up for funnel, they can directly sign up for funnel. They get their data into their visualization tools without talking to a technical team, without getting help, and it works. But nothing to, with that has anything really to do with marketing. That's any business user, potentially. And over time, really, we feel like that's the biggest problem that we want to solve. We want to help you know, business user get access to their data. We feel like the business intelligence and sort of the adjacent markets around there could be 10 times bigger if they really were made available to all business users. Very nice. So for the folks that are listening, Frederick, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? The best way to reach me is on LinkedIn. So Frederick Skanse on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Frederick, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Great. Well, thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.